0: Hi, it's Chris. I've got three exciting updates before we start. First, you've heard about the Democratic Blue Wave. Now get the T-shirt. In partnership with Political Wire, we've moved into merch. Donkey, surfboard, and different colors to choose from at politicalwire.com slash blue wave. But you got to move quickly. Our merch trial ends June 5th. Do I need to remind you that Father's Day is coming up? It's also graduation season. The good news? There's no limit on the number of shirts you can buy. Check them out at politicalwire.com slash blue wave. Update two, a few tickets remain for our first live event, June 7th in Westchester County, New York. My guest is Jennifer Palmieri, director of communications for Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign and author of the New York Times number one bestseller, Dear Madam President, an open letter to the women who will run the world. We had a great podcast together the other week. I can't wait to talk with her again. Details are at chrisreback.com slash live event. That's chrisreback.com slash live event. Update three. A reminder to sign up for my free newsletter at chrisreback.com. It has backstories, show notes, extra content, and more. This week's bonus question from my guest, Bill Browder. What's life like having to continuously look over your shoulder for Vladimir Putin? You'll want to see his answer. As always, signing up for the free newsletter puts you in the running for a free gift, a copy of a recent guest's book. I do a lot of research for these conversations. The newsletter brings you behind the podcast. Just go to chrisreback.com to sign up. Okay, enough housekeeping. Here's the podcast.
1: Instead of putting him in the emergency room, they put him in an isolation cell. He was chained to a bed and eight riot guards with rubber batons beat him until he died. Sergei Magnitsky was 37 years old, he left a wife and two children. <clears throat> I got the, um, the news of his murder the morning of the um,
0: 17th, and I've made it my life's work since then to get justice for Sergei Magnitsky. That was investor Bill Browder testifying before the U.S. Senate last year. If you know Browder's story already, you surely won't mind hearing it again. It's extraordinary. If you haven't heard it before, get ready. Bill Browder very well may be Vladimir Putin's public enemy number one. Why? Remember that Hillary Dirt Russia meeting that Don Jr., Jared Kushner, and Paul Manafort had with Russian lawyer Natalia Veselnitskaya in June 2016? The one the White House said was about Russian adoptions? As you'll hear, Russian adoptions is code for the Magnitsky Act, legislation passed in 2012 that now blocks more than 40 Russian government officials and business people from entering the U.S., froze their U.S. bank accounts, and banned them from accessing U.S. banking systems. Bill Browder is the force behind the Magnitsky Act. Everything about Browder's story is made for a movie, his upbringing, professional career, and especially... His life since an early morning November 2009 phone call informed him that his lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, had been beaten to death by guards on a Russian prison floor. As we know from the recent U.K. poisoning of that Russian ex-spy and his daughter, as well as various journalist killings... Sitting in Putin's crosshairs is, to put it mildly, an uncomfortable place. Just this week after our conversation occurred, so we didn't get to talk about it, Browder was briefly arrested in Spain on a Russian warrant. Turned out the warrant had expired and Browder was released. But the threat is always there. Before we begin, though, I want to remind you about our show's sponsor, the Cook Political Report. Primary season has arrived and midterm elections are around the corner. What can we expect? How's that blue wave? People who want to stay ahead of the curve turn to the Cook Political Report, and with good reason. For 30 years, the report has nailed the nation's most important election outcomes and political trends. People who make it their business to know politics make it their business to subscribe to the Cook Political Report. Just go to cookpolitical.com to sign up. That's cookpolitical.com. Okay, that's it. Here's my conversation with Bill Browder. Bill, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. Great to be here. So where are you calling me from, and how conscious are you of your surroundings? Are, are you always aware?
1: Um, well, I, I have to I have to live a different life than um, most people who aren't the uh, number one enemy of Vladimir Putin, um, but uh, I'm in London right now. I'm, I'm calling you from my office. We have a secure office, which uh, I work out of, and for the most part, I, tr- I try to have as normal a life as one can have under the circumstances.
0: I'm sure you do. You, you were in the news again recently. The Senate Judiciary Committee released the Don Jr. transcripts. Did you learn anything new?
1: Um, I learned a few bits and pieces of uh, <clears throat> sort of inside baseball, new things that would be interesting to me, and, and sort of real sophisticated some of this stuff. But uh, the, the main impression I walked away with from from uh, from reading all this stuff is. Uh, surprisingly, <clears throat> how central I was to the whole, the whole meeting. Uh, basically, it was a meeting about me and about the Magnitsky Act. But um, uh, uh, you know, the the, the, the the big piece of news that most people don't know is that the reason, one of the main things the Russians were asking for, uh, in addition to the repeal of the Magnitsky Act, was they wanted um, to convince Donald Trump Jr. and company at that meeting that if uh if if donald trump senior became president that that uh, the u.s government would arrest me and send me back to russia that was their that was yeah. one of their big um that was one of their big requests and and hopes and expectations and and that and my name kind of permeated that meeting with that specific uh thought
0: yeah that uh did that catch you by surprise. You had no. I mean, obviously, you knew. You know, we we know that the topic was quote adoptions. We know that means Magnitsky Act. Um, but the the fact that it was kind of so personal about you—had you gotten any word sense of that previously, or you learned it for the first time, like everyone else?
1: Um, no, I've I, I, I've known I've known since even before it happened that that was the uh, that was the objective of the Russians. Um, I've known that they've they've um, tried to exercise that objective in every different way. We, the, um, the Russian government has sent official requests to the U.S. Department of Justice to have me arrested. Um, they've been running around the halls of Congress with very uh, expensive lobbyists. Um, they hired uh, Glenn Simpson from Fu- Fusion GPS to put together the sort of, <clears throat> uh, sort of smear campaign package to have me arrested. Um, but it was interesting for me to see from like seven different vantage points, how that was going on. And and it was clear and it was obvious. And it was right there in front of my eyes in a, in a very stark way for the first time when I got to read all the interviews.
0: Let's go back to the start. I mean, your, your story is so remarkable. um, Obviously then thinking about it, I I really found it hard to, you know, to, to decide where to start. Um, And, and starting at the present leaves too much out of your backstory. Um, So give, give me the, 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 Brief version, I guess, of um, born and raised and your upbringing because it's it was not a typical American story.
1: Um, so I was born in Princeton, New Jersey, um, uh, raised in in uh, South Side of Chicago. Come from an academic family, but a, a strange academic family in that my uh, grandfather was the uh, general secretary of the American Communist Party in the nineteen thirties and forties, and so um, and my rebellion from my family in the um, 1970s. I was born in 64. Um, I put on a suit and tie and became a capitalist because that was the best way of being a rebel in my family. And and I went to uh, Stanford Business School. I graduated business school in 1989, which was the year the Berlin Wall came down. And uh, uh, as I was looking for my first job, I had this epiphany one day, which is that if my grandfather was the biggest communist in America and the Berlin Wall has just come down, i'm going to become the biggest capitalist in eastern europe and uh, i moved to europe I moved first to london and uh, and then eventually i moved to moscow and i set up a uh, an investment fund in moscow called the hermitage fund which um, uh, started with nothing but eventually became the largest foreign investment fund in the country with four and a half billion dollars under management and um and in the process um as i got stuck into um, investing in Russian companies, it became obvious that um, the biggest issue that I faced was corruption and massive corruption at these companies, and, and talking about tens of billions of dollars being stolen from major Russian companies by corrupt oligarchs and and uh, government officials. And and as a good fiduciary looking after my clients' money, and and um, as an outraged um, observer. I decided to try to do something about it, and what I did was um, I did uh, very uh, sort of forensic research into how these people stole the money, and then I shared it with the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, and uh, the New York Times,
0: yeah. and
1: that set off a process um, uh, that was both very positive financially. Um, uh, that that by, by shining the light on this stuff, some of it stopped, um, uh, and the share prices went up. But it also set off a process very negatively um which was that um, the people who were getting those billions of dollars that i had just exposed weren't happy and um and it all came to a head in um, november of 2005 after i had been living there for 10 years when i was when you uh, were st- stopped at the airport and expelled from the country and declared a threat to national security and then Real Troubles began after
0: that. Yeah, that's uh, one, one definition of Real Troubles. Um, I, I'll get to that in a second, just not, not to put too fine of a point on it, but you, you glossed over it very quickly. When you say, you know, it, I think it was something of an educated family, um, you know, your, your grandfather ran twice for president. Your father earned the National mm-hmm. Medal of Science. Um, your mom went to MIT on a full scholarship. Uh, I can't imagine many women were doing that at that time. Perhaps she was the first, if I'm not mistaken. I think
1: she was one of the first class of women. I think there were six women in her class, and it, she, uh, uh, she was the, uh, yeah, so it was a, it, a real breakthrough for, for her and for women uh, uh, what she did at MIT.
0: And your brother is one <laughs> of the world's top particle physicists. So, um, you know, how does it feel to be the black sheep?
1: Well, I, I was the, definitely the dumb one in the family by far, um, yeah. and, uh, all, and the, all, you secure, from, all you did was secure
0: all you did was secure four point five billion under uh, management, right? Not, I mean, anyone well, can I mean, do that. That's
1: for, in, in my family, that's very pedestrian stuff.
0: So,
1: <laughs> you know, if I if I, if I wasn't uh, discovering a new galaxy or or the origins of life, you know, I mean, you know, that, that
0: then what good are you? Money. That's that's yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> and indeed so the, the way you grew up and the family and that the dynamic were you always the type of person to question authority or fight for justice i mean was that always part of you or no you were just you know your singular goal was to define yourself and rebel against your family and you know gosh darn it you were going to do it by becoming a capitalist over in uh, uh eastern europe or russia
1: well, I come from this family of my my so why why was my grandfather a communist? He was a communist because he he was brought up in Wichita, Kansas during the great dust bowl, which then uh you know the family lost their uh farm and and uh all sorts of terrible things. He he had to drop out of school at the age of, of 12 and and work in a factory and and um and then the great depression happened and, and so um you know there was always this fight against uh injustice in his case social injustice and and you know, no matter how much you rebel from anything, that kind of stuff, um, you know, that kind of stuff, you know, pumped through the blood of our family, and it's <clears throat> kind of stuff that people discussed at the dinner table, and and uh, and it's kind of stuff that, that somehow ended up very prominently in my, in my value system, and so it was really hard for me to, uh, I couldn't go to Russia and just sit there and watch all this really dirty behavior going on without having some... A very deep emotional reaction, and my reaction was to try to fight it, which, of course, led to horrible things. But yeah. people ask me, would, would I, would I, would I, uh, what would I have done differently? Hoping that I would say, well, I shouldn't have fought the corruption. But the answer is, the only thing I could have done differently is just not gone to Russia, um, because uh, um, I couldn't sit there and just be one of these guys like many who I saw out there who are just like perfectly happy to look the other way and watch gross crimes and, and horrible things being perpetrated without any without any reaction
0: now you you indicated at the top of this conversation how putin really is chasing you all over the globe i mean he's gotten interpol involved there have been um obviously red notices which you know the title of of your book um but when he took office you were hopeful you you were you were happy that he took office after yeltsin weren't you
1: i was so 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 just to to put put a little um put you in the context <clears throat> the um the, the uh, pro- before putin um, there was a president by the name of yeltsin a lot of people won't remember him but he was this uh, guy who was the first president after the soviet union fell apart and and he was not a um standard politician he was this very uh, jovial big fat um drunk man yeah and um and he he basically did a deal with the devil to get into power, which was he gave, um, in, in order to get um, into power, he gave 22 oligarchs, 40% of the country, in exchange for them supporting him and using all of their resources to get him elected president. And to to, to put this into some perspective... Um, everybody else was living in destitute poverty. so you had these guys with these multiple yachts and villas and private jets and seven sixty sevens and all this kind of stuff and uh, And then the average Russian was dying at the age of fifty eight because they couldn't get high blood pressure medication at the hospital because they don't have any money for medication at the hospital and And uh, you know the guy who was teaching uh, physics at at Moscow State University. Um, has to spend most of his time driving around the town um, picking up fares in in a sort of gypsy taxi and, and the, the person who is supposed to be administering the uh hypertension medication at the hospital, the nurse, is 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 street walking to be to, as a prostitute to, to support her family. And so the the whole situation was completely horrifying and anybody who was there knew it and and, and I, along with everybody else, thought this is like just not right. These oligarchs shouldn't be Owning and running and, and and impoverishing the country, and so when Putin came in, he comes in. He's he's not fat. He's he's um, clean cut. He's not drunk. He, he's a he's a technocrat, or he seems to be. Speaks a bit of English, and he publicly announces that he's going to bring back, you know, to bring bring an end to the chaos and bring back some normalcy to the country, and and uh, and. there's nothing that I and everybody else who was there didn't want more than that was just the country to go back to normalcy. That's what he said he was going to do. It appeared as if he was going to do that. And and the big mistake I made, and a lot of people make, made and make, is that Putin has this great capacity to not show anything on his face. Mm. He he has no facial expressions. And so you can pretty much project onto Vladimir Putin anything you want. And I projected onto him sort of the, the, the good intentions of his words. And so he, he, um, he started being president, and, and for a bit of time he actually did behave like a, 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 a president who was acting in the national interest. He sort of slashed the, the complexity of the tax code and reformed various ministries and did stuff that looked quite good and also um, cracked down for a while on the oligarchs. And so it all kind of looked like it was going in, in, an, in a positive direction for a period of time but then something happened which changed everything which was Vladimir Putin arrested the richest oligarch in Russia a guy named Michael Hodakovsky. and um, mm-hmm. once he arrested you, you him he <laughs> put him on right he was the he was a, he was the CEO and and majority shareholder of Yukos oil company yeah he arrests him puts him on trial and then allows the television cameras to film the richest man in Russia the most powerful man in Russia on trial sitting in a cage and that had a profound impact on the rest of the oligarchs um, who thought themselves they don't want to sit in a cage. And they went to Putin and said, what do we have to do to make sure we don't sit in a cage? And and Putin said 50 percent. And that was the moment that Putin became the biggest oligarch in Russia. And, um, and that was the moment that um, uh, everything went really wrong in the country.
0: What happened to you on November 13th of 2005, and then subsequently, how did you get to uh, Sergei Magnitsky?
1: So uh, I was flying back to Russia after a weekend trip to London on November 13th, 2005. Um, I was, this was like the 250th um, time I had entered the country. I was going back and forth all the time. I went to the VIP lounge at Sheremetyevo Two Airport, which is the international airport in Moscow. I handed my passport. I sat down to wait for it to be processed. It should have been a two-minute affair. An hour later, I'm still sitting there. And then all of a sudden, um, four heavily armed border guards burst into the um, into the uh, into the lounge. They grab me. Um, uh, they take me down to the detention center of the airport. They lock me up overnight. I don't know whether I'm being arrested or just or deported. I'm sitting there overnight can 't sleep i 'm getting more and more nervous uh, the next morning uh, I, they, the, the flight out is is eleven a m at nine thirty a m They still have to come for me i 'm pretty sure i 'm going to be arrested ten o 'clock they 're still not there ten thirty they 're not there I'm, at this point adrenaline 's pumping through my veins a one hundred percent i 'm being arrested yeah and then uh, at like ten ten forty two they finally grabbed me put me onto the airplane and deport me back to, to London, which was like the, the, most, the biggest relief I've ever had in my life that I wasn't going to Siberia. I was going to London.
0: And so you, you get back to London, and the first thing you do is, um, you, would you, is, it, is it secure the people in Hermitage uh, and simultaneously secure the money of your clients?
1: So, so I, I, you know, kicking me out is is pretty harsh for a guy whose job it is to manage Russian money. But I understood that 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 that, that you know, <laughs> when the Russians turn on you, that that that's a pretty mild sanction. And so I looked in and said, what what else can they do to me? They could arrest my people, take hostages, or they could seize all the money we have invested in the country. And so the first thing I did was I I did an emergency evacuation of my entire staff and their family. And then after I got everybody safely out, then we sat down and we said, we need to liquidate our portfolio so these guys can't seize the assets. And we quickly and quietly did that. And we successfully got everybody and everything out of the country. And um, the only thing I kept in Russia was a small office, a rental office, and I had one secretary there. And um, and in case ever the problems blew over and I could reestablish myself. And and then I moved on to become an investor in other places, thinking that that was the end of a dramatic and interesting story. Maybe one day I'll write a book about it, I said to myself, and and moved on to other things. It turned out that um, while I was moving on to other things, they were just getting around to really going after me. And um, on June fourth, two 2007, about 18 months after I was expelled from the country, um, 25 police officers uh, from the Moscow Interior Ministry raid my office and 25 more officers raid the office of an American law firm that we used called Firestone Duncan and they um, uh, were specifically looking for the stamp, seals, and certificates for our investment holding companies. They found all that stuff uh, at the law firm's office. Uh, they grabbed those documents um, and then a couple, uh, about two months, three to three months later, we discovered those documents had been used fraudulently re-register our, our companies out of our name into the name of a guy who had been convicted of murder and let out of jail early by the police specifically to put his name on these documents. And um, uh, that's when I hired Sergei Magnitsky. He was the smartest lawyer I knew in Russia. And his, it was his job to figure out what they were doing and trying to stop it. And uh, Sergei figured out what they were trying to do. Um, what they were trying to do was two things. First, they wanted to steal all of my money. But thankfully, we had already gotten it out and they didn't succeed but the second thing that they tried to do and this is sergey's discovery was that when we were selling everything to get our money our money out we had a huge profit we had a billion dollars of profit and we paid 230 million dollars of capital gains tax to the russian government and what um it, it was uh, paid you, discovered,
0: you you paid the money you we, paid the tax.
1: We paid the money in the, we paid the, money in the previous year. And so yep. What Sergey discovered, and this is the most outstanding, unbelievable, cynical thing you can imagine, Sergey discovered that the people who stole our companies, which consisted of, of police officers, organized criminals, and other government officials, had gone to the tax authorities with our stolen companies, and they, they filed an amended tax return to say that there was a mistake made in the previous year's tax filing that um, these companies hadn't earned a billion dollars. They, and they came up with a bunch of f- fictitious documents to say these companies actually earned zero. And therefore, the $230 million was paid in error and it should be returned. And they, they applied for this um, tax refund on the 23rd of December 2007, two days before Christmas. And it was approved and paid out the next day. Yeah. No questions asked
0: because you you a can get a tax you,
1: refund in the history of Russia.
0: Right. Because you can get a lot done in federal governments, particularly, I'm sure, in Russia right around Christmas time. I mean, everyone's available, <laughs> working hard.
1: If if you wanted to do a five thousand, a legitimate five thousand dollar tax refund because they because you overpaid it, um, uh, it would take you 10 years. They they did a two hundred and thirty million dollar tax refund, the largest in the history of Russia in one day on Christmas Eve, mm. Um and, and, and we were so surprised by this because it wasn't our money that was being stolen. This was the Russian uh, government's money that was being stolen that we figured that if Putin and the top brass knew about this, um, they would do something about it, that the good guys would get the bad guys and that would be the end of the story. And so we filed criminal complaints with every different law enforcement agency in Russia. I went to the, to the newspapers and radio. And then Sergey went to the Russian State Investigative Committee, which is their version of the FBI. And he gave sworn testimony against the people involved in this uh, crime, particularly the police officers. And then we sat back waiting for the good guys to get the bad guys. Well, it turned out in Putin's Russia, there are no good guys. Uh, Five weeks after uh, Sergei testified against these corrupt police officers, the same officers came to his home on the 24th of November, uh, 2008. They arrested him. They put him in pretrial detention where he was then tortured uh, to get him to withdraw his testimony against these police officers. Uh, they put him in cells with 14 inmates and in eight beds and left lights on 24 hours a day. So, um, uh, to impose sleep deprivation, they put him in cells with no heat and no window panes in December in Moscow. So he nearly froze to death. Uh, they put him in cells with no toilet, just a hole in the floor where the sewage would bubble up. They'd move him from cell to cell to cell in the middle of the night. Um, they moved him like 28 times. Um, and the purpose of all this was to get him to withdraw his testimony against the police officers and to sign a false confession to say that he stole the $230 million and did so on my instruction. And they expected this this uh, uh, tax lawyer working for an American law firm, wearing a blue suit and a red tie, buys his Starbucks in the morning, sits in a fancy law mm-hmm. firm office that he would buckle in a week. And they... Totally misjudged Sergey Magnitsky. He was the most principled man of integrity that they would ever come across.
0: Did and you, for him the idea of per. Did you know that about? I'm sorry. Did you know that about Magnitsky? No, I, did I, you I, know that about his personality? He, he was.
1: He, he, was he, he was. He was. He was just the smart tax lawyer we knew. <laughs> I had no idea. Um, he, he was. For, for him, the idea of perjuring himself and bearing false witness was just something he wasn't going to do. And and uh, you know, you you, you 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 never know how people are until they're under duress. And you see a lot of people, lots of people, you know, talk nice in real life. And then when, when the moment the heat comes down, they, they do all sorts of terrible stuff. Sergei Magnitsky was just the opposite. He was, he was pretty mild mannered, quiet guy, smart as hell. But, um, I had no idea that he was this man of incredible sort of iron strength of principle. And he just refused to, he just was not going to do that. And, um, the pressure pressure just got more and more and more intense and, 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 uh, uh and um and his health started to to break down he got these terrible pains in his stomach um uh he ended up losing 40 pounds he went to the um uh prison doctor and they they diagnosed him as having pancreatitis and gallstones and he was scheduled to have an operation on the 1st of August 2009 and then a week before the operation <clears throat> the um uh the same guys who had been pressuring him came to him again and said Here's this false confession. Sign it now. And again, he refused. And in retaliation, they abruptly moved him from the prison that had a medical wing <clears throat> to a maximum security prison called Butyrka, which is considered to be one of the worst prisons in Russia. Um, uh, uh, and most significantly for Sergei, there was no medical wing there to, to deal with his issues. And at Butyrka, his health completely broke down. He requested medical attention at the prison, and they refused it. He, then, um, he and his lawyers then wrote 20 different requests to every different branch of the criminal justice system for medical attention. Every one of those requests was either ignored or denied in writing. And eventually, uh, things got too much for his body, and he went into critical condition. It, on November 16, 2009, Sergei Magnitsky went into critical condition. The Butyrka authorities then didn't want to have responsibility for him. And so they they put him in an ambulance to a different prison facility, um, uh, which had a medical wing. But when he arrived at the different prison, instead of putting him in the emergency room, they put him in an isolation cell. They chained him to a bed and then eight riot guards with rubber batons beat Sergei Magnitsky to death. He was 37 years old. He left a wife and two children. That was November 16th, 2009, eight and a half years ago. And uh, that was the... That was the day that changed my life forever and changed his life forever, of course. And I, I got the um, news on the morning of the 17th of November at 7.45 a.m. And uh, it was the most heartbreaking, life-changing, traumatic news that I could have ever gotten. Effectively, he was murdered in because he was working for me. He was mur- murdered because he was my lawyer. He would still be alive today if he hadn't been. And so I've been on a mission <clears throat> to get justice for Sergei Magnitsky for the last eight and a half years. Um, I made it. Yeah. I put aside all my other activities. I'm no longer a businessman. I'm a full time justice campaigner. And I went after the people who uh, who killed him to make sure they face justice. Yeah. That's what I've been up to.
0: You said in in Senate testimony last year, you said that morning I made a vow to Sergei's memory to his family and to myself that I would seek justice and create consequences for the people who murdered him. For the last seven and a half years, I've devoted my life to this cause. What does that devotion look like?
1: Well, um, I, I thought that, that for the Russians would actually give some justice to this story for one simple reason, because... Sergey, had before they killed him and written it all down. He wrote down in the form of 450 complaints he filed in his 358 days in detention, everything that they did to him, who did what to him, where, how, when, and and why. And he would take, once a month, he would take this this stack of handwritten complaints and give them to his lawyer. And his lawyer would then file them. and, And most of the time, almost all the time, they would be ignored. Occasionally, they'd be rejected. But I got copies of every single one of those complaints. And because of that, We have the most granular, uh, well-documented tale of human rights abuse that's come out of Russia in the last 35 years. And because of that, um, I figured that the Russians would have to um, prosecute at least some of the mid-level people or low-level people who were involved. Um, But that didn't happen. The Russians circled the wagons. Uh, The Russian uh, Putin got involved personally. And and they, he personally exonerated every single person involved in the false arrest, torture, and murder of Sergei Magnitsky. Um, uh, he gave some of them state honors and promotions. Hmm. And so it became clear to me that, we, that if I was going to get justice for Sergei Magnitsky, I was going to have to do it outside of Russia. <clears throat> and so I embarked on this campaign to get justice, which led to uh, the U.S. Congress. And I, I had a, an opportunity to meet with... Um, uh, Maryland Senator Benjamin Cardin, who's a Democrat, and and uh, Arizona Senator John McCain, a Republican. And I told them the story of Sergei Magnitsky, and I said, <clears throat> can we ban the visas and freeze the assets of the people who killed him? It may not be perfect justice, but it's, it's, this is something they care about because this they, they killed him for money and they don't keep their money in Russia. And these two senators uh, said yes, and that that's what became the Magnitsky Act, and um, the Magnitsky Act didn't just apply to Sergei Magnitsky; it applied to all other human rights abusers in Russia, and um, uh, and it got traction. It got real traction in in, in November of, of 2010. I'm sorry, of November 2012. Um, yeah. It went for vote and passed 92 to four in the Senate. I passed 89% of the House of Representatives. And on December 14th, 2012, President Obama signed the Magnitsky Act into law, and Putin just went crazy. This was that we found the Achilles' heel of the Putin regime. This is what they care about. They care about their money, and and we found it, and it, and he just went out of his mind.
0: And, and the retaliation, of course, was uh, to stop American adoptions of Russian kids.
1: So so the, the, and it was quite extraordinary because the adoption of these of of The the Russians didn't put the healthy orphans up for adoption. They only put the unhealthy ones, the ones who have have, uh, Down syndrome, HIV, and fetal alcohol syndrome, and all sorts of other stuff. And Americans would come with open hearts and open arms and take these children who wouldn't survive. Many of them wouldn't survive life in the orphanage with their medical conditions. And Americans would come to Russia and take these these sick children back to America and, and nurse them to health and and uh, and so effectively, by Putin banning the adoption of of orphans by american families he was he was sentencing his orphans to death to retaliate against um the american's um policy and and uh, sanctions against his corrupt officials, which shows you how completely desperate and and um, horrified he was by the Magnitsky act. the other thing which which um Putin did was um he put Sergei magnitsky on trial three years after Sergei was murdered by the regime he was put on trial in the first ever trial against a dead man in the history of russia mm. and i was put on trial as his co-defendant um and we were both found guilty um sergey they couldn't do anything more than killing him they sentenced me to nine years in prison in absentia in russia
0: and you haven't stopped in the, with the u.s um how many countries now have uh magnitsky acts
1: so um, we took this on the road and made and want to make this a, a global piece of legislation. And so so far we have seven countries. Uh, first it was the U.S., uh, then Canada, United Kingdom, um, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, um, <clears throat> uh, Gibraltar, the little island off the coast of Spain. And I got seven more countries lined up for this year. I'm, I'm working on on Holland, on on Denmark, Sweden, France, uh, Australia, South Africa, and Ukraine. And um, it's, 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 it's this policy, it turns out, is, is the policy – we found the Achilles heel. This is a policy of how you deal with Putin. He does terrible, terrible crimes in his own country, and so do his people. And then and the crimes are generally to steal money, and then they keep that money in the West. And so by going after their money in the West, this is the policy that seems to work.
0: And I know that you maybe since then. I don't know if you knew him before, but I, I know that you've interacted or you interact uh, frequently, um, I believe, with Gary Kasparov, um, whom I was, uh, you know, privileged to talk with uh, earlier about six months ago. Um, I don't know if you play chess yourself, but do you do you game out going forward? I mean, what how how do things play out? Do you feel? <laughs>
1: Well, Gary Gary Kasparov, who is is one of the staunchest um, supporters of the Magnitsky Act and who stands with me on my side of the barricade, is a much uh, smarter chess player than I will ever be (laughs) or could ever hope to be. Um, uh, uh, You know, I had no idea how this whole thing was going to play itself out. It could all come come completely undone for Putin. Um, He could end up killing me. There's just any of there's so many different possible permutations of how this whole thing resolves itself in the end. Um, uh, but I'm not stopping what I'm doing, and he doesn't. He's apparently not stopping what he's doing, and so it's it's a it's a fight to the finish.
0: Bill, thank you, thank you for your time, and uh, thank you for your uh, fight for justice. Thank you. That was my conversation with Bill Browder. Want more from Bill? A reminder to sign up for my free newsletter at chrisreback.com. It has bonus insights from him on the question what's life like having to continuously look over your shoulder plus sign up and you'll get a chance to win a copy of a recent guest's book my thanks to bill for the conversation and you for listening i'm chris reback i'll talk with you soon